Welcome to Last Call with Jamie and Christian, our guest today, Sherry Cole. Sherry, how are you? I am awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you know, one of my one of the more exciting interviews we, we have here. I just can't wait to dive into some of your coaching philosophies, some of your transitioning, and also just your new book and, and your new way of life and stuff. So again, well, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be on with you. I enjoy your show, and um, this is quite an opportunity for me. So thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's get right after it. You know, Coach, what have you what have you been up to? Uh, when's the new book going to drop? Um, just give us all the knowledge right here. Well, what I've been up to in the the year that has raced by, year and a half now, uh, is uh, first of all, I became a Gigi about the time I stepped away from college coaching. Um, that's what middle aged women who are you know should be wearing grandma pants but aren't ready to yet call themselves as a Gigi. <laughs> So I have a one and a half year old granddaughter that I've had an opportunity to spend a ton of time with in this first very formative year of her life. So I feel very blessed by that. But I've been so busy. I'm not sure how I had time to work. I mean, honestly, it's crazy, but it's all good busy. It's all things that I choose. And I think that's been the best part of retirement is finding the uh, optimal rhythm of life for me. You know, when you coach and you know this well. You just go, 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 go. And you don't determine any of it. You just go and you keep going. And the pace is always like, I need five more minutes. I need one more hour. I need an extra day in the week. And um, you don't really have the time to stop and think about, you know, do I really want to do this or not? It's like, can I have to? It's part of the deal. So retirement has given me a chance to kind of figure out uh, what I want my days to be like, you know, uh, Annie Dillard says, and I think it's on a, on the wall behind me here, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And uh, you start thinking about it. And yeah, I want to make sure I'm spending them the way I want to. And that's retirement has afforded me the opportunity to do that. So I feel incredibly blessed. But um, the quick answer, I guess, to your question is, uh, when I left coaching, I knew that there were other things I wanted to do. I'd always known that there were other things I wanted to do. I, I was not going to be 70 and be on the sideline. That just wasn't me. And it's fine for people who are, but I knew there were other things that I wanted to do. I was the kid who like wanted 37 lives, you know, like all the stuff I want to do. And um, I figured out that if there was something else I wanted to do, I better do it pretty quickly. Um, not getting any younger. So I ran straight from the sideline toward my other passion, which is writing. I've always wanted to write. And so I dove into that. I have a website, sherrycole.com, where I've posted a weekly blog for almost 70 weeks now straight. Um, I've enjoyed that immensely. Just enough pressure. You know, you got to produce, but not so much that every day you wake up thinking, ah, I got to produce today. So that's been great. And then I wrote this first book. And I have other ones in my head, but this first one just had to come first because it's about the beginning. And so super excited about that. It's been a ton of work. And I have learned as you and I were talking before we came on the learning curve. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much. Uh, but the book will come out on October 18th and it will be on Amazon at Barnes and Noble and then at select bookstores in Oklahoma. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm 
so juiced to have a chance to, to read it. And, you know, one of the things when I look at your life and, you know, we've known each other for a few years now, uh, when I look at your life, so much of it is about transitions, right. And, you know, why, you know, learning your story, you know, being a high school teacher and, and moving from being a high school teacher and coach into coaching at the university of Oklahoma. Most people think that's such a daunting big step and a huge task, but when you get a chance to know you and know your story and how you kind of interact with things, right. It's, it's like a very natural progression for you to make that kind of transition. Um, and now you get a chance to write. So it's like, you're legitimately combining those passions. If we could kind of look backwards and kind of start at the beginning of the coaching journey, just for those who are getting a chance to get to know you for the first time. Um, what is it like being that high school teacher? Um, when, you know, and just kind of diving into that so deeply and then having that opportunity to transition into college? Well, first of all, it was quite different in the late 80s when I first, I graduated from college in 1987 and got my first job as an assistant high school basketball coach and assistant volleyball coach. I had never played volleyball. I'd never even seen a volleyball match. So I just would kind of coach them and say, bump, set, hit, bump, set, hit, and clap my hands. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I drove the big yellow school bus. Um, I taught senior English for five hours of a six-hour day. I had no planning period. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I thought it was the greatest job on the planet. I loved it. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I went to college with the idea that I want to teach and coach high school. Because the most influential people in my life, besides my immediate family, had been my teachers and my coaches. And so it just seemed like that's what you do. If you want to make an impact, that's what you do. So I graduated from college, uh, went and worked two years at Edmund Memorial High School, and then got an opportunity to be the head coach at Norman High School, which was the second largest school in the state at the time. So it was a huge job and uh, had the opportunity to move to Norman and do that, where I didn't. I did get a planning period. Thank you very much. But I did continue to teach junior English for a while and then transitioned into physical education a little bit later when we went to a block schedule. But I loved high school teaching and coaching. I couldn't imagine a better way to spend my days. I loved everything about it, except taking rolling grading papers. And (laughs) every job has those things, right? Um, But I just was juiced to go to work every day. And I never was this person who said, I want to be a college coach by six years or 10 years. I want to be a college coach or never, never. I just wanted to coach ball and teach kids. And it just so happened that this opportunity at the university opened up and, um, there's a couple of stories there, um, if you don't mind my digressing just a bit, but uh, I was in the early throes of, of teaching at Norman High, and I went to get my attendance sheets out of my uh, teacher's cubicle one day, and a couple of guys in the in the teacher's lounge said, hey, the University of Oklahoma just dropped women women's basketball, and I said, no, they didn't, and they said, yeah, they did. We just heard it on talk radio, and I'm like, no, they didn't. That's impossible. They can't. And they said, they just did. We heard an announcement from the university. And I said, well, they'll have to put it back. Haven't you ever heard of Title IX? You know, I was fresh enough to college that Title IX was like my frame. And I'm like, well, they can't do that. It's impossible. You know, they're going to be sued immediately. This is dumb. I went back to my office and went on about coaching and, you know, didn't really think that much about it until I got home that night and watched the news and, you know, saw everything and then followed it closely. But never in my life at that moment, did I imagine that 
that would someday be part of my story and I would somehow be connected to that. So you fast forward about six years and um, uh, the job opens up and uh, same thing happens. Some guys in the teacher teacher's lounge, hey, did you hear the University of Oklahoma women's basketball jobs open? You should apply. And I'm like, are you drunk in the middle of the day? And I just went back. I was nine, eight and a half months pregnant with my second child. I had a three, almost four year old um, and a great team. And I mean, a great team. We had just won state and everybody was back and we're probably going to win again. And I was living my dream. I mean, it was awesome. And then there were a group of people from town who came in my little office one day and said, I sound small town when I say people from town. I should say the community, but I felt like I feel like it was <laughs> um, a town of 100,000 people. But um, these guys came in and said, hey, we want you to apply for that job at the university. And I'm like, what? I don't have any college experience. No, we want you to. I'm like, ah. Came back again a couple of weeks later. Just try, just throw, throw your name in. And so I did. And long story short, I end up, of all things, being named the head coach. And um, part of that was being in the right place at the right time. I mean, you cannot subtract that from the equation. I was in Norman, living in this town. So all the people associated with the university, including the Board of Regents, knew who I was. So I got the opportunity. And it was right before, Jamie, it was right before um, women's basketball salaries just exploded. It was right before women's basketball was carried on TV other than Texas and Tennessee. I mean, we were just post Connecticut's first championship. So ESPN and Connecticut were just about to fall in love and and create this thing that is women's basketball that we all stood on. And so I, you know, it couldn't happen now because of the external things that are so grand, but at the time, um, you know, it was, I mean, it was a big jump. I'm not downplaying that, but the opportunity wouldn't present itself now. It was just the right place, right time. And I do say I was doing the right things. Um, that's a part of it too. But without the other two, the time and the place, it doesn't happen. So um, I was extraordinarily blessed. I worked for an amazing um, senior women's administrator and Marita Hines, who just literally helped me make it happen. I mean, she just literally step-by-step hand on the machete with me, helped me make it happen. Such great memories with Marita and my staff and my teams from those early years where we were just trying to figure out how to get it done. And um, continued acts of sincerity was what we stood on just, just over and over and over and over. And eventually players will come and people will come and um, we'll get this thing rolling. I love everything about it. When you, when you see me looking down here, I'm taking notes <laughs> at an incredible level. Um, I Sorry, I talk it. a little fast sometimes too. Sorry about that. I'm from the South too, so I understand it completely. <laughs> um, I, I just love the way that you you communicate and the way that you share. Thank you. Um, and I think it's it's just really powerful. Um, you know, one of the things I wrote down here is, and it happens all the time. I'm sure, you talk to a lot of young coaches, and they always have such a timetable on everything they're going to do, and. I still haven't figured out how to help them with that. <laughs> you know, no. when I took a, when I was uh, interviewing for the job at Oklahoma, Gino Ariema was a friend because he had recruited one of my players at Norman high. And he was incredibly instrumental as a sounding board through that period of um, trying to get the job. And then the early days of the job. And there were lots of things he told me that 
that I remembered. Uh, I'll share three real quick. One, he said, uh, you're interviewing in front of a committee. And when you're in the room, there will be at least one person. And of course, Gino being Gino said, probably in your case, there'll be way more than one, but there will be at least one person who doesn't want you to get the job. Mm-hmm. If you can identify who that person is, sell that person, win that person, get that person on your team and in the interview, you win the interview. I'm telling you, coach, um, two minutes in, I knew exactly who it was in the room. How could you tell? Body language, um, just intangible cues, um, reactions to answers. It was just, it happened really quickly. And I, yeah. I thought immediately, I mean, I just immediately went, I'm, I'm getting her on my team. And so that's one of the things that I remember that has been invaluable. And I can't tell you how many times I've used that idea, you know, whether you're uh, going into a, a, a meeting with a donor and trying to ask for money, or you're trying to grow your fan base, or you're trying to get a recruit, you know, you got mom and dad and coach and trainer in there. And one of them doesn't want them to come to Oklahoma. Which one is it? How can you win them? That kind of thing. I've used it over and over and over. And it's been very helpful. The other thing, or one of the other things uh, Gino said did for me was uh, early in, in that first year, it's just a, you know, you're just getting hate mail and you, you can't practice. Your team's not very good. And you, know, you come out of practice and you're like, oh, that was the most painful two hours of my life. And, you know, everything is just this woe is me kind of deal. And so I called him one evening before I left the office. And it must have been fall because I remember it being almost dark outside. And I just was unloading. They want me to be everything. I'm supposed to be their mother and I'm supposed to be their cheerleader. And I was just listing all these things that, you know, these guys needed from me and expecting this soft, warm blanket, you know, and he's <laughs> quiet for a little bit. And then he says, you know what your job is? And I said, well, I think so. But what do you mean? And he said, your job is to be whatever they need for you to be. So go be whatever they need for you to be. I was so mad, coach. I was so mad. And because I knew he was right. And at the same time, I didn't know how I was supposed to be those things, which is kind of part of his magic. He can kind of make you mad enough that you figure out a way to do it. And I hung up the phone and thought, I'll show him, you know, I'll go be everything to all these people. And so I've remembered that um, and shared it with young assistants through the years when they just, you know, these kids or these people or this administration, they need everything. Well, you know, your job is to give them whatever they need. What is that that they need? Provide it. That's how you build it. So I I, I guess when I start with all that and, and say those are things that um, that I, I learned from him, at, at the beginning, you're just, um, it's just so important to not lay out that timetable. He told me before I even went to the press conference, before I got the job, they're going to want to know how long it's going to be until X, Y, and Z happen. You can't tell them because you don't know. Yeah. So just tell them that every single day you're going to do the best you can and that the private victories are going to precede the public ones. And you got to be where your feet are and talk about what it's going to look like and sell them on the vision and don't put markers on it. And that's, I think coach, that's the interesting thing about goal setting that I always struggled with, with players. When you set a goal, are you also setting a limit? You know, like I want to average 18 points a game. Well, what if you could average 22? You know, like a big, 
I, I, this is going to sound bad. I, I like don't believe in goals. Yeah. Anti-goal setter. I, <laughs> I feel like this through my career. I do and I don't and I do and I don't. And I think that there are, are um, like they're great for short-term stepping stones. By this time, I want to be able to do this. But as t- as far as, you know, big, hard lines at the end of something, I think they do more damage than they do good. Yeah. You know, my interest through my son plays soccer and basketball and baseball. He's, he's 10, he plays them all. And I love this from his coach because his coach is, his coach does a really good job with the kids. Um, and one of the things he gave them was they had to give him three goals for the season, team goals, individual goals, whatever. And I was like, Oh, like, uh, you know, and I was just like, I was like, I cringe because the the idea of this so you know my son of course the goalie he goes you know i want to get three sh- i want to get two shutouts you know um and i'm like well what happens if the defender falls down and you know like <laughs> you know it's a weird position being a father in this and not being the coach right um and trying to support the coach so not trying to to sure. just the idea of having a goal but it was just kind of an interesting thing i think the goals are so easy and they're sort of low hanging fruit that are easy to kind of touch but in the same respect, I, I agree in a lot of ways. Like it just, I do feel like it limits you to how good you can really be. Yeah. It can definitely put hard stops on things. And I think the other piece of it you just alluded to is um, if they're based on outcomes, so many things beyond our control determine the outcome. Right. I mean, what if you sprain your ankle and what if um, like you said, somebody falls down or, you know, what if you, you know, have a kid that just, flips over backwards and lucks one in. I mean, things can happen. Right. And um, then you're not in control and that's where the frustration lives. Yeah. So I think it's really important to, if you're going to set goals and I prefer the word standards, if you're going to have standards, then, you know, this is the line you're reaching for every day in ways that no one can prevent you from doing it. You're the only one who could not do that. Yeah. So it's things like, you know, uh, picking up trash or being kind or being 10 minutes early, or those are things that, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna have control over. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I felt like the last few years, it, it's been more challenging. Even though everyone talks about the process more than ever. I found it more challenging to get our athletes focused on the process. You know, like they'll come in the office and say the right things and you know, about the process. And then as soon as they walk out the door, they're on to the result. And why do you think that is? Well, I think the result is, I mean, you, you said like a great line there, like private victories will succeed the public victories. And I, I would think it's because they want to get a lot of public victories. That's what's, that's what's championed in our society these days, you know, and, and it's always been championed in a, a capitalism system. I mean, that's just, that's the way our, our world is set up, but it's never been so um, publicly displayed and so instantaneously and continually displayed. So it's one thing for them to say, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to sprint down the floor every single time. Well, nobody's going to put a, a make a TikTok of somebody sprinting down the floor every time. So there's not going to be any any reward for that anywhere. That's not an outcome that the world will recognize. So it's super easy for young people to gravitate toward those things that the world recognizes and places value on. Yeah. That's where the real work of coaches comes in, I think, to try to keep that separation between what you as an athlete value and what the world values, keep those in different boxes and understand what you're dealing with. That's hard. That's Herculean work right now, my friend. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it, and it, it's interesting, man. I felt like early on, it was like, it was much easier. And in the last few years, like, man, this is really challenging. Yeah, I'd also say this would happen. We'd have guys who work really hard. They'd film how hard they work. They'd put that out there as well. But then there would be that other pressure when they didn't perform in the game because they were putting out there how hard they worked. And 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 so some ways that built like an expectation. And then there's a fear, uh, you know, there, there's a fear that grows. Well, if I do that, then I'm going to have to do that other thing or I'm going to have to do that thing again and it's this mounting and that's why that the coaches work in charge in terms of framing for an athlete what success looks like and what it is and constantly because you're it's it's the coach's voice against all these voices of the world and it's so easy for athletes to get locked into that and what's dangerous is what happens to them after they're done playing if that's their frame and the narrative they go through their life with, because goodness knows we're not all winning all the time. Right. And, and I think what happens is, you know, those voices also diminish when you fail. You know, the oh. coach's voice kind of rises up when you fail. That's why I think coaches are conditioned to, you know, we know this, the most successful people fail the most and they just have a great failure recovery system. Um, and so then you feel that they feel the pressure when people start leaving their lives. Uh, you know, because they're not performing as well. No question. And, and so it's everything that says to them, you value, you're a value, you matter, you're important, um, becomes based on an outcome instead of who you are and what you're about. It's about the thing that you did. And so that separation of identity, this is who you are. This is what you do. You know, um, boy, we did that a lot. This is who you are. This is what <laughs> be, be who you are. And it basketball is a game you play. This is just something that you do. But you know who struggles with that the most are coaches. I mean, yeah, it's, you, know, you know, it's funny being, being on the outside of it now slightly and interacting with coaches differently. Uh, I'm amazed at that, at, at not being able to separate themselves from being a coach to being a father or being a mother or, or just being a person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're not all enshrined in the same. Which is interesting. And it's, it's, um, gosh, it's a hard thing to do when you're in the middle of it. Um, but that's, in a sense, that's exactly what we're asking our athletes to do, to be about the process, be about who you are, not about the outcome. But then as coaches, we can't sl slip in and out of, coach to parent, to friend, to sibling, we are, we define ourselves by our record, by our, our performance. Um, shoot here in Norman, it's not whether or not you win a football game. It's by how much do you win a football game? I, I mean, it's hard to keep winning at that level, you know, winning. Um, yeah. And, and it, what I mean by that is keeping yourself separate from keeping your own identity separate from the outcome of what you're doing every day. It's hard. Yeah. You know, watching you through the years, you've always seemed just so grounded, you know, and I've always really admired about, admired that about you, you know, watching you from afar. And like, a, you could tell like in, even in your press conferences, when you were like in it, you were able to communicate in a way that would show that you were, that you're not so far in it that you can't see the bigger picture that's going on. How were you able to stay so grounded or readjust yourself? I'm sure, you know, I know, you know, I know you probably got deeper sometimes than others, but how are you able to readjust yourself and stay so grounded? Well, early, I think it was fairly easy and it was probably a combination because there wasn't, the platform wasn't as large, the lights weren't as bright. So it was easier. Um, you know, the, the 
higher you go up the level of success, the greater the need for internal control because you get pulled so much harder. I think my kids and my family, uh, that's the fir- that was the first grounding mechanism. Well, maybe the first is that I grew up in a small town in southern Oklahoma. And, you know, if you didn't stop at the stoplight or stop sign, not light, but sign, Somebody told your mom and, you know, that's just the kind of life you lived. Everybody was just connected. We were all the same. We were all equal. It didn't matter. And so that's where it began. But then having, you know, when you got little kids, you come in the back door, you know, you got your brains beat in in the game and your daughter's three and she wants you to read her a bedtime story. You know, come on, man. It's life gets real in a hurry. You know, you're holding this little child and you're like, We'll work on blocking out tomorrow. Who cares right now? Right now, this is the most important thing. So my kids were highly instrumental in me being able to stay balanced. It was hardest for me after they were grown and gone. Mm. That's when it was hardest for me. There's no question. And I think it was a combination of I had all this time that I didn't have before. You know, when they're little, you're caring for them. When they're older, you're following their lives. You know, we've got a basketball game here and we've got a basketball game here and then we've got baseball and then we've got then they're gone and um, you have this time, more time to break down film, more time to think about the opponent, more time to think about your players and your team and your staff. And you just, it takes up this bigger space in your life. And so that was hard for me. I wasn't as, um, as effective in those years, I don't think, because of, partially because of um, overinvesting mm-hmm. uh, from an emotional and heart standpoint. Um, also a piece of that is once you, uh, talking to go about goals earlier, you know, we were building the program. We're going to buy such and such. We want to be in the NCAA tournament. And that was a really important bar for us. We, we held on to that by the year 2000, we're going to be playing in the NCAA tournament. And, um, then when we did, it was a really big deal for us. So never would that be a goal again. So then it was, we're going to be in the sweet 16. And then it was, we're going to be in the final four. And that was going to be, we're going to play for the championship. And once you've played for the championship, the only goal left is to win it. Yeah. So you get a young team and you're like, we're going to win the national championship. Oh, it feels like there's something missing there in the middle. So that's one of those disconcerting pieces of goals to go back to our previous topic. But I think um, it's just a, it's a decision that you have to make about where your priorities are every day, staying grounded. I think having friends outside of the world of coaching, because you can just start to believe that this world is the world. And it's just a little bitty piece of this great big world. But when you're in it, you can't even imagine life happening outside of it. You really can't. It's like outer space or something. And so to have friends on the outside so that you can, you know, and they're like, what? And they laugh and you're like, that wasn't meant to be funny. Okay, maybe... I'm a little too serious about this. It was just a great balancing um, act. And then I think, too, the other piece of it is knowing what makes your heart sing and giving your your heart a chance to sing a little bit Mm. while you're doing all that stuff. I firmly believe that's one of the reasons I have such peace um, in this new season of life because I kept those fires going. I couldn't write all the time. I couldn't write every day. Months would go by where I didn't write, but I continued to write, even though not as often as I wanted or wished I could, I kept that going enough that I knew I still ached and yearned for it. Um, 
I picked up tennis. I, I absolutely, matter of fact, when we're done, I'm going to play tennis. Um, I love it. I play about three times a week now. I got into that just a little bit as an early, early morning thing before I go to the office. And it reminded me that I loved being physically competitive myself where I could control it. You know, yeah. as a coach, you can't control everything. I can run over there and get that ball. So keeping those kinds of things, you know, I read, I, I'm a big reader and I would read a lot. Uh, when we traveled, I'd read almost every day before practice for about 20 minutes. Just, it was, it was just a passion and a happy place. And so if you don't protect those while you're coaching, I think there are all kinds of dangers, uh, mental health, emotional health, physical health, even, and team health. If you're too over-invested in that one thing and it is your life, they will feel that. And so you've got to be able to, to um, keep these other things going. And, and I think that gives you some of that balance and a little bit of that detachment, at least maybe the beginnings of a detachment that, that can become so unhealthy. Yeah. You know, beginning of this, we were talking a little bit about my transitioning, you know, and how it's been. And one of the hardest things has been making new friends outside of the business. Um, you know, like, you know, my son plays all these things. So you hang out with the parents and I don't even know what to talk to these people about, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't mean to be rude or feel like I'm like too cool. I just, I, I just, I just don't know what to talk to them about. And so yeah, I'm like you- learning how to like, you know, like you said, we've been in a small piece where it was like everything for, for so long. And now it's like this such such a bigger world out there. Yeah. And our experience, I think a, a coach's life, the experience is so unique. It's so unique. And that's one of the reasons that it's so lonely at as a head coach, because even assistant coaches don't know what a head coach feels like. And so you're in this world that it that the outside world can't understand. They and they all think that they do because they can see. <laughs> You know, from the outside, they have no idea what the inside. I've always said, if I write a book, it's going to be called "You Got No Idea." That's not what my book's called. That's not it. But that's true. Like people, they don't have any idea what happens. And so, how do you even find the touch point to begin to talk to somebody outside of that if that's where you've been, you know, solely? So it is. Um, that's interesting that you say that because. Uh, I've told several young coaches, female coaches in particular, that a friend group is so important. Like you, 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 you don't have one when I'm talking to them, you don't have one. And they all go, they don't because when they're not working, they feel like they need to be taking care of their family, which yes. And then where's, where's the time to go, you know, to dinner with a friend. You don't want to, you don't have any time. You're you're exhausted. When are you going to go to lunch? You're not going to go to lunch with and so you have to make, be really intentional. I was bad about that. And I've had some really great lunches in the last year. <laughs> I literally just made a little piece, a little list of, uh, on a piece of paper of like friends that I, they're, they're friends, but I never, I don't ever go to lunch with them. So we go to lunch now. That social component is important, I guess, is the simple way to state that. And we can't, just because we're on all the time and we're surrounded by people all the time as your coach, that doesn't mean that you have social connections with people. I, I, just because there are a bunch of people around means nothing in terms of connection. And so seeking those out, and I know it usually has to be a tight group because you have to protect the circle, but um, having those friends and those relationships that are healthy and thriving that are outside of the business, I think is really important. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting. as like your perspective and, 
Yeah, I love with you know, you're talking about like your, your parenting and, and your children. Now, I have a young, I'm a newborn, uh, three month old newborn. And like every day, this, this thought goes through my mind it's like, how can I do this the next time better, you know, with him, you know, with him and with my family? Um, and I, so it's neat you talk about just coming home after the game and just, hey, I got to take care and just kind of letting it, letting it be for the next day. I think that's just so important to be able to be present in both worlds. There's no question. I was talking to a young coach earlier this week and um, I advised her to uh, take a tiny little piece of paper and uh, write the names of the most important people in her world on that piece of paper. And then once you do that, put that in your wallet or your purse or whatever you carry with you. And those people are who you're not going to break a phone call or conversation with for your work. Mm. You know who I broke conversations with more than any other human on the planet while I was working? Who? My mother. <laughs> and and we didn't talk every single day. We talked often, but not every single day for sure. But she would understand. I'd say, oh, mom, I got to take this. I can't call this kid back. You know, it's a young kid calling and rules precluded you from being able to call her back. I got to take this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Call me later. Call me later. So we would hang up. I I can't I can't even remember a conversation where that didn't happen in the last five years of my job. Yeah. And once I finished and um, had those uninterrupted conversations, I realized how disrespectful that was. Even though she didn't care in a million, she would never care. If yeah. she were on here right now, she would say that didn't bother me, and it didn't. Yeah. It didn't bother her. Doesn't matter. I said somebody else is more important than you. And for all of us, there are three or four or five at least people on this planet that are more important than anything that happens on the outside. Yeah. So who are those people? Write them down and make a pact with yourself that if some fire erupts with your job, you'll deal with it as soon as this conversation is over. But you will not break from this conversation because these are holy. These are sacred. These are my people. And I'm going to respect them to the full extent of that. And then I'll go deal with that. I think that's a really, I wish I had done that. I think it would have been a very important boundary in terms of that separation of identity from the job that you do. Last Call with Jamie and Christian is powered by Speakeasy for Sports, the first exclusive platform for sports professionals by sports professionals. We connect you directly with top performers in the industry and allow you to build the relationships that will help grow your career. Think of it as the Final Four, NBA Summer League, or any other sports convention, all now from your laptop and phone 24-7, 365. Careers grow through relationships, and relationships grow through Speakeasy. Join the Speakeasy family today at speakeasyforsports.com. Yeah, yeah, I always, my mom always, she, she always says she doesn't call me because she feels like I'm busy. And I'm like, you can call me, call me anytime. I actually have this rule with my son, my older son, is any he can anytime he calls me, I answer. Now I might be like he would call me at practice. So you might see practice film, you'll see me like on my watch and they're like, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. But I'm like, I just want him to know that whenever he calls, I'm gonna answer. Right. Um, but I love the next step of not interrupting convo because yeah. I'm a thousand percent guilty of that. Of just being like, hey mom, you know, oh, I'm on the other line, I gotta do this, you know, and and it's like at the end and of the they day. Understand. They understand because they love you and they support you. But it's that old thing where 
we we treat the people we value the most the worst. Yeah. And yeah. so that's just kind of a parameter that I think might be able to help a little. Um, along those, I mean, that's always such good stuff. Um, you know, obviously you've talked a lot about writing and using writing with your team. And you and I first connected on this years ago, um, your post game, how you would have your players write. And I've adopted that to a lot of other things that we were doing through the years, but I thought this was so good. And it's one of the things that I got the most value out of um, the post game reflection sheet that you would use. Where did you come up with that? And, and, you know, what are some of your insights from using it? Well, thank you. Uh, And I don't think I invented it. I I can't have no idea where I got it from. Uh, Probably a combination of things, but I'm just a big believer in reflection. I don't think any of us do that enough. And, you know, if, if as an athlete, you took five minutes to reflect on your practice or your workout, you'd be so much better the second time around. The next time you went to the, to the floor, you would be so much better because you would, you would have an idea of how everything fit together and where the gaps were and what you needed to focus on. And we just, in this society go so fast from one thing to the other. So it became, it, it originated as a, a part of, you know, reflection. It's just a really important piece of growth. If you read a poem, you should stop and reflect on what it means. If you are looking at a scientific system, you're going to, you should stop and reflect on how that system applies or what it looks like in, in practical application. And so that reflection piece is big, but I also found that um, I would wonder after a game, how that player that didn't get in was feeling, or I would see a kid after a game and think, you know, I think she played great, but she's not walking like she thinks she played great. And I just wish I knew what was going on. And so it, sort of morphed into this quick little exercise that we could do where they would just respond after a game. And the greatest takeaway for me, and I, and I was, we actually practiced it before game started. We would practice the act of responding because the first thing they want to do is just give you a synopsis of the game. In the first four minutes we came out and we were blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we came out in the second half and we were flat. And then, you know, once we started to substitute, I'm like, I know all that. I watched it. I was there. We don't need to talk about all that. Um, let's talk about the other stuff. Like, okay, how did you feel in in terms of what you wanted to do before the game? What did that look like? And what can you take away? And and all those different things. But I ended up learning as much about their emotional state as I did about the words they wrote by how they wrote them. Their handwriting on the sheet after the game would tell me pretty much all I needed to know. How much they wrote or how little they wrote would tell me where they were emotionally because I really knew my kids. And um, you can just tell who's up and who's down and who's struggling and who's not engaged anymore and or who's got the looking through the wrong lens at what happened. The wrong things are important to them. And it gave such insight to be able to coach them well the next day because you weren't guessing. You know, you had some sustainable proof of where they were and you know the secret to teaching and coaching is to meet kids wherever they are doesn't matter and get them on further down the line and so if you're just constantly guessing at that it's a really hard thing to do so those were very very important and then there's um 
another step that later I, I sort of added to that, which was in, in terms of reflection, periodical with the staff, periodical with the team, um, three questions. What am I doing that I need to do more of? What am I doing that I should stop? And what do I need to start doing? Just very basically. And, and to really listen to them. I, my, one of my assistant coaches responded once and said, you need to stop sending players um, edits right after the game. Cause you can just send them on your phone. You know, you're, you're looking at your computer screen and watching it play and, and you can do a little 15 second clip. You see here how you didn't read this on ball, right? Where's the help coming from? And it's very instructive and it's, it's good. It's a great way to teach. Not after the game. They can't take it. Their mom and dad have been, you know, why didn't you play more? You only got four shots. You're not playing hard. You know, they're in that world. And then coaches sending them clips. And I was like, oh my God, that's terrible. Oh no, I've been doing that. Yikes. And I stopped immediately. But had I not posed that question, I wouldn't know. And it was an easy thing to correct. Super easy. But I needed somebody to tell me that. And so those three questions allow for reflection and uh, a tangible sense of where you really are. And sometimes where you think you are is not where you really are at all. And mm-hmm. uh, that can be for players, teams, um, teammates. I've used those three questions within teams. You know, a player ask a captain asking another, what am I doing? What am I not doing? What do you want me to start doing? Um, those are just really helpful things. And I think writing really slows it down and makes you process and adds a layer to it. Yeah. There's a but, layer to writing with your name on it. That's such, that's so accountable that almost forces you to, to get to the point. Oh, no question. And there is scientific research around um, the actual right, uh, actual art of writing and especially cursive without going down a rabbit hole here, but there is research that the fact that your pen doesn't come off the paper when you write cursive, it's, it's building ruts in your brain. It's actually forming the myelin sheath. And that's one of the, like, if, if you're taking notes in class, you're more apt to remember it if you write it with your hand than if you put it in your keyboard. And now people don't even put it in a the keyboard. They just take a picture of whatever notes are going on with their phone. How do you remember that? You have no cerebral imprint to go back to. So the art of writing itself actually putting the pen on the paper has a value beyond the emotions and the information that are spilled there. Yeah. You know, the use of assessment through the course of the season and not being afraid to ask the toughest questions. I spent a lot of time the last few years trying to figure out like what, like those three questions, like what three questions should we ask or what questions should we ask every single year at this time of year? Cause I felt like as the year goes, the years go on, they kind of all are like a rerun. You know, you get a few games in and these things are sort of happening with this group of people who thought they might be playing more. And and so how can we get ahead of that with the questioning? Um, I thought was really, really important. Yeah, I think questioning is, I think it's the future of coaching. It's the now of coaching, but it's certainly the future of coaching. Um, and by nature, we're just such great tellers. You know, I mean, we are world class. Put your <laughs> hand here, put your other hand here, put your foot your left toe and the instep of your right, spread your feet. I mean, we can tell, tell, tell. But really the way we learn is when we have to search for answers. And so coaches can teach better if they ask better questions. And 
not only are players going to remember it better, but they're going to also have the skill of solving problems. So they're developing that muscle of figuring things out, which, by the way, um, is an underdeveloped muscle with all young people because there's so much is done for us. It's not their fault. It's society. So much is done for you. You don't have to pick up a dictionary and find the word. You just, you know, it's on your phone. It, it's highlighted or underlined and you can fix it. You don't ever have to, you don't have to dig or grapple to get anything. And so when, as coaches, we ask them questions, they're having to mentally dig and grapple. And eventually they build some muscles of discernment, which allows them as, as human beings, once they're done to engage in conversations of significance, to actually have discourse with someone instead of just regurgitation of what they see online or read somewhere to actually get into it and have a thought about it. So I always felt like we were not only training the how to read a screen when we're asking them questions, we're training their brain for how to think about things and solve their own problems and coach themselves off the court outside of the game. Yeah. I found it so interesting. You know, we took, we, we took a lot of transfers and a lot of people are taking transfers now. And, and, and when I have these conversations, we took a lot through the first three years. Um, when I have these conversations with coaches, I'm always like, I don't think they always understand like the breaking down of the bad habits that you're now inheriting. You know, when you have a younger player, they have some bad habits, a little bit different, but one of the, biggest habits I thought was hard was like this art of having been manipulated for so long. You know, what you and I are talking about is a thinking, a thinking, a process of learning, of reflecting. But so many of our athletes are coming from a place where they've been just manipulated to do whatever the coach needs them to do. Um, that transition is more challenging than learning how to play a different style of play. Boy, coach, you that that's really well said. And I could not agree more. And I don't know that I've really thought about it like that, but you're absolutely right. And so what happens when you're manipulated? Your trust factor is really low. How do you coach a kid that doesn't trust you? How do you earn that trust? And so um, the art of asking questions sort of gets applied to things like that. You know, and we used to go five deep. Like I would ask my players, all right, so if, if you, we'll just use manipulation because we're talking about this. This is not a conversation I would have with them, but it, just to exemplify, it, if if you're manipulated all the time, then what happens? Well, trust is an all-time low. Okay. Next question: If trust is at an all-time low, how do we build it? Okay. Well, we spend more time together. Okay. If we spend more time together, what do we need to be doing while we're spending that time together? So those questions just unpack and get down to that thing that's really the issue that can actually stimulate change and you're right that it, it's it's about how they think and how they connect the information that you know we're going to play fast we're going to play slow we're going to play three out two in we're going to play five out all that stuff is just whatever it's yeah. it's can you create those conduits for that stuff to slide up and down along that's the deal and um, that's the part that probably coaches are the least trained to do to be able yeah. to create those. Do you feel like, you know, I've obviously I've been following since you've been in retirement. Do you feel like you're, you're getting enough of that coaching in other ways now? Yes. I figured out. Um, and, and let me preface this by saying there is a joy that is unique and sublime to being a part of an athletic team and being in those moments just as rich when you're cutting down nets for a conference championship or to go to the final four as 
when you're broken and heart, you're sitting on your, your shards of your heart in the locker room. I mean, richness is the same in both of those. And I think the one makes the other. There's something unique and incredibly special about that. There's just no, there are no words really to encapsulate that. But when I left coaching, I've been asked a million times if, you know, if, if, I've been asked, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I've been asked, I would have some, so many Jimmy Choo shoes in my closet right now, but you know, do you miss it? Do you miss it? Do you miss it? Do you miss it? And my, I will almost feel guilty because my answer is always no, immediately. No. And it's not that I don't miss the teams and the competition and the feelings. It's I don't miss the profession. And upon reflection, what I've found is that what I miss is being shoulder to shoulder with people doing really hard things. And once I realized that was the thing, I recognized all these ways to do that outside the court. There are a million ways every day to lock arms with people doing important stuff. It could be in a Bible study. It can be philanthropy in your town. It can be solving a problem. I mean, a coaching buddy of mine mine and I were trying to figure out uh, a little wrinkle in the publishing chain of how to get this book out. And we wrestled with that, literally sweating, wrestling with that verbally back and forth across the computer screen. We figured it out. It was like, we were, you know, we'd been playing two on two and we just won, you know, it was that feeling. So there are so many ways to get that. We just have to realize the vulnerability and the trust and the investment that is required in whatever arena you're in. It just so happens that in sports, if you don't have that vulnerability, you don't have that trust, you don't have that investment, you're not going to get that outcome to ever experience it. So being able to translate those things, transfer them to whatever you do, you still get that high. And um, that's available for everybody. You don't have to be in sports to to experience that. Yeah, it, it, it just your passion for for teaching and learning and your curiosity towards it, your fearlessness to, to dive into new things. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit. Rooted to Rise, your first book. What's your inspiration behind it? I know you've always wanted to write one, but why this one? Well, this one kind of had to be first. Um, during COVID, uh, you know, you're stuck at home and I had a Moses basket. That's literally my floor right now. I call it a Moses basket, a big, you know, woven basket just full of stuff I had written, loose leaf pages, like just stuff. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, I would write a journal entry and, and just toss it, you know, and, and I, what I, they weren't in nice, neat books because, you know, you're on an airplane, I'm writing on a legal pad. And sometimes it's, you know, on the back of an envelope or whatever. So I just, everything was in there. And I had three or four essays that I thought were um, good enough to do something with, but I didn't know what I would do with them. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't really know what to do with this. So during COVID, I just kind of started going through the basket and laying things out. And I was like, oh, this kind of, there's kind of a thread here. And um, then I, I took the time to write a few things. And then I wrote a few more things. And I had a pretty good idea by the time um, that last season was over that uh, I was not too far away from having a book organized and more needed to be written. But I had the idea. I had the frame. And um, the stories were about people who impacted me. That's what I've always been able to write best about are people, um, my observations of them. And, um, you know, there are 
our lives are full of them. And, and so I say at the start of this book, this is not everybody. <laughs> this is just a smattering. To do an exhaustive um, essay collection of the people who've impacted me would be impossible. But um, these are just some of the stories of the people whose lives really indented mine and made me different. And sometimes it's chance encounters. And sometimes it's, um, there's a story about my dad, a um, story about my grandparents. So um, it kind of goes from that small town roots and the way I was uh, raised through teachers and mentors, not just not just my teachers and coaches, but my kids, some of my kids' teachers and coaches, and then mentors, meaning bigger picture kind of folks. And then um, the last section is about players and teams because we learn a lot from them as well. Uh, so it was just um, it was just kind of a labor of love. That was my big gratitude letter to all these people and the numerous ones that aren't mentioned that you matter, that what you do matters and it changes people and um, makes us who we are. And, and hopefully when people read the book, uh, it's about my people for sure. It's very specific and very personal, but I hope that it makes people think of theirs. I hope it makes, when you read the story about my son's kindergarten teacher, I hope it makes you think about either yours or the one that you entrusted your children to when they were in kindergarten. I hope that it makes people stop and think and feel about the people who've, who've really molded them. And because again, that's the power of reflection. I think you live more gratefully with that. Oh, it's, uh, I can't wait to, to check it out. And just, again, your ability to communicate and how you see the world. Um, and it, although it's the first one, um, and as many as you write, I'm going to make sure I read and check out. And, Thank you. and uh, you know, we do this thing on last call here where, you have to pick two people. It's like the end of the night and it's the last call. So it kind of fits, fits what we do here. You got a person on your left. Who's a person who's retired. You got a person on your right. Who's still uh, actively working. Let's go. No family. Um, who's on your left. Who's on your right. The person on the right who's still active that I'm going to is Gino. Um, that's just, um, we have a great friendship. I have great respect for what he's done and um, his realm of experience is very uh, enlightening because of his whole background, where he came from and, you know, came to America on a boat for goodness sakes. And he's the winningest coach in the history of ever. So that paradoxical extreme is, it has, gives him a lot of texture. So I think there's a lot to learn there always. Um, the person to my left, that's a really tough one. Um, and I got to choose one, right? You can only pick one. Oh, oh. Oh, you're killing me there. Um, I'm going to give you one that uh, you're going to think is crazy. Grant Taff. Okay, why Grant? Legendary football coach at Baylor University. Uh, Christian, uh, tough competitor, a guy that got it long before the rest of the world got it, I think. And I just think there's a, a treasure trove inside of him, and I would love to hear all about it. I love it. Sherry, where can we find you? Well, um, my website is sherrycole.com. I got to tell you a real fast, really funny story there. When I was, my publishing manager said, you need a website because you need to blog and get some writing out there before this book gets published. And okay, I, how do I do that? I don't know how to do that, you know? <laughs> and um, um, they said, you, you need a website and what do you want to name it? And I was like trying to come up with all these names and they were like, no, 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 it needs to have your name in it. And I was like, 
what? That's like the most narcissistic thing I've ever heard. And they were like, how else will people find you? I'm like, oh, okay. That makes some sense. So my website is sherrygold.com. I mean, most narcissistic thing you've ever heard, but that's how you can find me. It's easy. Um, I have a weekly blog there that you can subscribe to and it's free. And then there's a monthly newsletter that comes along with that subscription. And then uh, information about the book will be forwarded on. If you subscribe to the blog, you'll get hits when it's coming and all that. But the skinny, and there's a page about the book and so forth on there, but the skinny on all that is the book will be uh, released on October 18th and it will be at amazon.com and at Barnes and Noble and at local select bookstores around the state of Oklahoma. So you can find it on Amazon quickly and easily and, um, and hopefully it will impact people. And, and coach, it's the kind of book that um, I just hope makes people think and feel. And if, if you can read a, a piece of it, you can, you know, read a story at night, read one in the morning, whatever. You don't have to sit and read from cover to cover. Um, if for that five, 10 minutes that it takes you to sit and read that, if it can make you think and feel for that, then um, I feel like it served a purpose. And um, these people are pretty incredible, um, not for what they've done, but for who they are. Yeah. And some of them have done incredible stuff, but really for who they are. And I, I, my hope is that it will my, remind the readers of their own people and and make them think and feel and hopefully move them to gratitude and an action around that. No doubt that it will. Coach, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been an honor. And I've like, like 20 questions for you. So we'll just have to do this again where I get to ask the question. <laughs> I love it. Can't wait. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on The Last Call, powered by Speakeasy, where careers grow through relationships and relationships grow through Speakeasy. We hope you enjoyed it and we look forward to connecting with you soon.